0: invite you to take your scriptures and turn to that Luke passage we read a little earlier in Luke chapter 2. The last number of weeks over the Christmas season, we have been contrasting the meaning of Christmas, the cultural view of Christmas with the Christian view of Christmas. And for the most part, they are opposites of one another, and we've taken a look at that uh, from various stories Um, But today, the truth is, when it comes to the cultural view of Christmas and the Christian view of Christmas, overall, uh, this is what they have in common. They both want to be very positive, and there is obviously a great deal of that in Scripture about that. Um, But they paint a picture that peace on earth means that everyone's going to get along and all things are great, and if Jesus coming in the world uh, means that there'll be a peace that you know, everything's going to be fine and, and great. But the scriptural view of that is a little different. Um, in the scriptural view of Christmas, there is the good news and there's also the bad news. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you look at the story that we read in Luke 2, the verses previous to that, they detail for us how uh, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus as a baby um, to the temple. On the eighth day, he was to be circumcised and there was an old man uh, that was in the temple. He was, the Bible says, waiting for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And he'd been waiting for many, many years. And uh, so as Jesus and, and his parents' arms go by, he is prompted by the Holy Spirit. He's able to perceive through the Holy Spirit Jesus' true identity. And he stops them. And he gives the, uh, God a blessing because he understands that now he's seen the Messiah. And as he takes the little child Holds him in his arms. He makes this proclamation, and it's been called in Latin the nunc dimittis. It's It means basically now uh, you are dismissed. It's what he says. Now that he holds Messiah in his hands, God can dismiss him from this life. He can leave this world in peace, and he can die. And uh, those are the famous words. They've been cited in liturgies for centuries. They've been read in, in uh, Christmas stories and pageants and services for as long as I can think and way beyond hundreds of years before that. But that's not all that Simeon says uh, to Mary and Joseph on that day. Um, He also has a second statement that he makes. He makes a blessing vertically toward God, and and he says that in verse uh, 29 or 28, I should say, but he also makes or gives a blessing horizontally, and he gives that in particular to Mary. And it read, like we said before, in verses 33 and verses 34, he says, here's the blessing. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You see, so he makes a blessing to God and he makes one to his family. And the second one is not as known. In fact, you may have not have read it before. Uh, A lot of Christians have not. It's never been set to music. Um, It's never been, or it doesn't often get read at services. And the reason is, is because it doesn't fit the cultural and even the Christian view of what Christmas should be. Because the words from Simeon to Mary, and uh, obviously about baby Jesus, are not positive. They're not and the reason is, is because uh, Christmas really just isn't that simple. In fact, Jesus' his whole life is really not that simple. Um, let me give you an illustration. If, you're a, if someone is a surgeon and they are going to bring peace uh, to your body, can I say it that way? Um, they're going to bring wholeness to you, um, but you have a tumor, Um, what are they going to have to do to bring peace? Well, they're going to have to have surgery. They're going to have to cut you open and take the tumor out. Why? Because it's really the only path possible to health. If you really want your body to have peace or be whole again, surgery and cutting you open for that will be absolutely necessary. How does a therapist help a person who's really struggling with depression or uh, anxiety. Well, they have to bring up painful memories of things that they've gone through in the past or present experiences, things that they'd rather not talk about, things that make them afraid, and they're going to have to go over those things. Why? Because that's the only way that they're ever going to really properly deal with them and learn deal with them or learn to handle them. If you are a trainer and you're going to help someone who's overweight to uh, work out or get in shape or or, or to lose some weight, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to have to make them work out, and they're going to have to spend hours in the gym, and they're going to have to rework their schedule around it, and it's going to be painful, and they're going to be tired, and they're going to be sore, and they're not going to be able to eat some of the foods and drink some of the things they use. Why? Because here's what's true in the surgeon and in the therapist and in the trainer is they have to make things, make you feel worse before you will feel better. See, Simeon understood that although now that he holds the Messiah, this child in his hand, that he can depart in peace, that this child will bring peace, peace to so many people, but not in the way that people think. See, Jesus is going to have to make people feel worse before he can make them feel better. That's why the two phrases uh, used by Simeon describe what Jesus has to do to bring peace. The first one is the rising and falling of many. And the second one, if I could say it tongue-in-cheek, is even a sharper point because he says a sword will pierce through your own soul. See, in other words, and you read the Gospels, you know this to be true, people will be polarized by Jesus. In fact, Simeon goes to say that they will contradict him. They will oppose him. See, Jesus will make some people incredibly angry, and he still does to this day. But that is the way or the path of peace. Often, you cannot come to peace, you can't come to know that you're right with God, until Jesus makes you angry, until he makes you mad, until he upsets you. See, the sword of Jesus causes conflict in two ways, according to Simeon. He will cause conflict between people, and he will cause conflict within people. So I want to take our time this morning and unpack both of those one at a time. First is this. Jesus causes conflict between people. Now, when Simeon's talking, when I'm talking this morning, and even when I quote Jesus in a minute... When he says he brings a sword, he doesn't mean a military sword. He's talking about a metaphorical sword. Jesus is not saying, when he talks about that he came to bring a sword, he didn't come to incite physical violence. That's not Jesus' way. That's not what his kingdom is all about. Hear me. Here's what he's really saying, and I want you to hear this very clearly. When Jesus talks about a sword, he's he's saying that his call to commitment, if you're going to be committed to him... And he's going to be above everyone and everything in your life. If that's true, it's going to bring conflict in your life. Let me show you a couple passages. Would you hold them in both, turn to both of them and look at them? Because I want you to see the, the comparison I want to make. The first one is Matthew 10, 34. Please turn there. And while you're, when you get there, hold that one. And then just a few pages away from where we are, Luke 12, 51. They are Matthew's and Luke's version of the very same thing they are just slightly worded different but worded similar enough that you can get that they are the same but there's a distinction between the two of them and i really want to point it out because it clearly states what jesus means when he talks about bringing a sword right the first one is Matthew 10, 34, and it reads, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. Remember what Jesus, I didn't come to bring peace, this idyllic peace, this romantic type of peace on the Christmas cards kind of peace where the b- animals are lowing, Jesus doesn't cry, and everything goes perfect because I, I didn't really come to do that. It's, not that. it's not really that simple. He came to bring peace, but not that way. He's gonna tell you how peace has come. He says, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. And again, not violence, not military conflict, a different kind of conflict. Now, we're going to read Luke 12 51 in light of this one. And I want you to notice that he interchanges sword with another word because it's really what he means by when he says sword. Look at Luke 12 51. Do you think that I've come to bring peace on the earth? That's the same phrase. No, I, I didn't come to bring peace. But what does he say? Not a sword this time. No, I tell you, but I came to bring, what does it say? Division, see? So sword and division are interchangeable because that's what Jesus means. Rising and falling, Simeon says. When Jesus comes, there are people who are going to be rising and people falling. There's going to be a sword. It's going to divide people. And you've got to come to the conclusion, really, you do. When you read these words of Simeon, You have to come to the realization that there is no neutrality when it comes to thinking about Jesus. See, you can't. Jesus will not allow you this morning, uh, if you know about him and you read his word, you can't just like him. You can't. You cannot just be someone who admires him. You cannot come to the conclusion that all Jesus is is that he's somehow just a good example. He was a martyr for a great cause. He will not let you stay there. See, here's what Simeon says. Rising and falling, you will either love Jesus or you will hate him. You will be for him or you will be against him. That's what he says. There's really no middle ground. You cannot straddle the fence. There is no Switzerland, as some would say. See, because here's what the sword of Jesus does. See, it divides people. It separates people. You're either for him or against him. But here's the funny thing, the surprising thing. You'd be surprised at the people that it divides. You're going to be surprised, from Jesus' own words, about who he says the sword affects the most. And I want to bring out just two types of people that the sword separates and divides. And you really get to know who they are. And here's the first one. Religious. Religious people. Hold your finger in Luke and turn to John if you would. Three times in John's gospel, he's going to use the word division, John is. He's going to talk about Jesus and dividing people. And all three of these are religious people, namely the scribes and the Pharisees. The first one is found in John chapter 7 in verse 43. Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, tabernacles. And there's this big ceremony in the temple where they walk from the temple all the way down to the Pool of Siloam, and they have a water, and they in this picture, and they fill it up, and they go back, and they pour it down. And it's pictures that God brings water. He satisfies us. He's the one who takes care of us in the wilderness because he's the faithful God. In the middle of this, when they're pouring out the water, Jesus stands up in the middle of the crowd. Imagine thousands of people there. And here's what he says. Come to me and drink. Jesus himself, in front of everyone, claims, see, I'm the living water. That could only be possible if he was God. See, it's Jesus' claims, it's who he is, and what he says he has done that separates people, it divides people. And the scripture says in John chapter 7 and verse 43, so there was a division among the people over him. See, he claims to be God. He claims to be the source of living water. He, he claims to be the source of our salvation. The only real true satisfaction that you can have. And when Jesus says, it's me, but it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. See, you have to make a choice. See, you have to see it's either Jesus or it's not. It's either Jesus or money. It's Jesus or sex. It's Jesus or career. It's Jesus or your education. It's climbing the corporate ladder. It's the money. It's the car. It's the house. It's the girlfriend. It's being married. It's having children. See, Jesus says, see, I'm it. I'm the living water. And he divides people. There was a division over him. In fact, and every time Jesus is in this little crowd, there's always a response. And it's marked off by, some said this, and others said that. See, there's always two groups of people. And in this case, some said, look at the verse, the next verse, some of them wanted to arrest him. Some of them said in verse 40 that this must be the prophet, but others said, is this really the Christ? And people were divided over him. Chapter 9 and verse 16, if you'll turn there. He's in the temple and he hears, heals this man who has been born blind from birth. It's never been done. No one has ever seen a person who was born blind receive their sight. The man's been this way for decades. And now Jesus comes along, rubs mud or, or in his eye, and, and he gets cleansed. He is forgiven. He is able to see. And there's division over it. And in chapter 9, it says, in verse 16, Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others see different two responses. How can a man who's a sinner do such things? And then it says... And there was a division among them. It's the same word. It's the Greek word schism. It means to divide. See, they watched Jesus and they said, hey, this guy has authority over people's sight. He can say the words or he can do things in his own power and God gives him the power to heal this man. So if Jesus has this kind of authority, you know what that means? Then maybe he has authority over this temple. Maybe it's okay for him to do it on the Sabbath. Maybe he has authority over us. And they were having to wrestle in their heart, if this is who Jesus really is, then this is what it means for me. And see, people are divided by that. I have given the gospel to so many people, in fact, two right now that I'm giving the gospel to. And I tell you, I give them the gospel and they're all excited about the fact that they can be right with God, that they can have their sins forgiven. But when I tell them it's a surrender of your whole life, they lose the excitement of it. Because they want Jesus in their life so that when they die, they go to heaven. But they're not really so interested in Jesus coming in their life, forgiving their sins. And then they can't do those things anymore. Because they know that if he has authority over this, then he really has authority over it all. And when you come to it and you think about Jesus and who he really is, there's division over it. There's division over it. Chapter 10 and verse 19. Jesus is, again, talking about who he is. And now, this time, it comes to a climax. Jesus tells the religious leaders that he is the shepherd of Israel. He's the one that Ezekiel prophesied about. He is going to, in his own words, verses 16, 17, and 18, he is going to lay down his life for them. He's going to become the sacrificial lamb, and he has authority to lay it down, he tells them, and he has authority to pick it up again. And he is going to be the sheep of two folds, the Jewish fold and the Gentile fold, which means everybody needs what the Lamb of God, the shepherd of Israel, is going to do for them. And in verse 20 of chapter 10, here's what it reads. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. See, they had to think about, yeah, it'd be great, Jesus, you shepherd my life. Jesus, you help me, you protect me, you provide for me. Do all those things. But he, here he says, "But here's my main thing about being the shepherd. I have the authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to pick it up again. In other words, my death and resurrection is going to change everything in your life, not just your destiny, but your desires and your disease, d- your deeds and who you are. And there was a division among them that what it meant for Jesus really to be who He was. You see, the sword of Jesus, here's what it does. It separates, it divides, and there's always, always just two responses. Either you believe his words, or you don't believe his words. And can I tell you, that's nothing new, because from the very beginning, the sword of Jesus has been very sharp. Adam and Eve in the garden were instructed by God, here's what you can and cannot do. Satan comes, and he twists God's words and perverts it with his and Adam and Eve had to make a decision God's words or the devil's words and the sword drew the line in the sand Adam and Eve chose Satan's words over God's words and it divided them not just them between them and God but Adam and Eve from each other see it caused friction and conflict because they listened to Satan's words Because the word of God is what divides. It's Jesus' words. Hebrews 4.12 says as much. When I believe the apostle Paul wrote this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Listen, piercing to the division See, the sword of God, the word of God separates to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it is discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. The power of God's word does this. It examines us. It discerns what you're really like. See, the sword of God cuts in such a way, a two-edged sword, that it gets below the surface. We all have a veneer. We all have a facade. We all have a religious appearance. This is how I want to appear to people. This is how I want them to see me. But the word of God goes beyond that, below that, below the surface. See, it discerns who you really are. In fact, the word discern in the Hebrew text there, I mean, in the the text in Hebrews, is the Greek word kritikos. And it's the word in English we get critic from. In other words, here's what God's when you read God's word or you hear God's word, it begins to critique your life. It begins to bring out the places of your inconsistency and your hypocrisy and the lies that you perpetrate by the way that you live. And see, that's what the Bible says. And in Hebrews 4, here's the key thing. Read the text all the way from verses 1 through 11 before you get to 12. And it's about two kinds of people. People who fail to enter God's rest and people who actually do enter God's rest. And the difference is what? It's believing Jesus. That's the difference. See, that's what the word of God does. And we have... For years, and still do, and perhaps even some today, we have religious people. And they come to our services, and they sit in our pews, and they're very nice, and they're kind, and they're good people. But they're just religious people. And the word of God, when they hear it, see, for some people, it cuts down to the core of who they are. And some people, see, they don't benefit. That's what Hebrews 4 says. They don't benefit from hearing it the same way. Siskel and Ebert used to be critics of movies for years, and they would tell you about the movie, and then one of them, they'd either give you a thumbs up, or thumbs down rotten tomatoes gives a percentage you get a 95 percentage or a 25 there's a big difference between it's whether they're recommending the movie or not see listen god's critiquing us today thumbs up or down he gives a percentage but it's not based on whether you're good or bad and it's not based on whether you're comparatively good or bad to anyone else you know what the critique is it's this believe in jesus or you don't believe in jesus you follow jesus or you don't follow jesus see it's all about that's what the word of god does it critiques us the last time the word two-edged sword is used in scripture is found in the book of revelation revelation 1:16 and 2:12 both of those are instances where the bible says jesus stands in the middle of the seven lampstands those seven lampstands represent the seven churches can i tell you this god doesn't just critique lost people and reveal their true heart to them he does that to his own people and it says in one sixteen of Revelation, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Chapter 2 and verse 12 says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. You see, it's the Bible is emphasizing over and over. It's God's words that divide. The mouth is, is a sword, not in his hand. It's a sword that comes out of his mouth because the sword is his words. And see, every time you and I sit here, everyone here this morning, you're watching on live streaming. See, you will have the sword. It will either cut you and affect you and change you, or you will ignore it and you will not believe it. There is no middle ground. Because that's what the word of God does. And it cuts and separates and divides. And the first group Jesus really emphasizes is it does that to religious people. But the second one may be even more strange to us. Not just religious, but relatives. And those two verses I had you look at earlier, Matthew 10, 34 and Luke 12, 51, listen to Jesus describe how the sword divides. In Matthew 10, it says, a person's enemies will be those in his own household. In Luke 12, it says this, from now on, in one house, there will be five, here it is, divided. Three against two, and two against three. And then he goes to start enumerating how relatives are divided because of his words. He says a father will be divided from his son, A mother from her daughter and a daughter from her mother. A mother-in-law from her daughter-in-law. See, he says it just divides between people. Yeah, religious people who aren't real. They don't really love Jesus or believe in him. And it really brings to light that that's true in their lives. But even the closest people to you, people where you live, people that in your household, what Jesus says, if you follow it and obey it and believe it, it will often divide people. I remember a girl in my youth group when I was a youth pastor, no one in her family was saved, she had a wreck of a home, and at 16 years old, she came to our youth group, she got saved, and she said, Pastor Walker, should I get baptized? I said, yes, you should. She goes home and tells her parents that she's going to get baptized, and they don't want her to. She was coming to church by herself, so she came back the next week and said, Pastor Walker, my parents don't want me to get baptized. Should I get baptized? I said, absolutely. I said, because now that you're a Christian, you follow Jesus, his words are most important. His authority over you even is greater than the apparent, your parents' authority. But go back and ask him if you can. But if they don't give you permission, you will need to do it anyways. And so they, she asked permission and they said no, but next Sunday she got baptized. <laughs> and she followed, and let me tell you this, it wasn't easy at 16 to do that because you know what, following the words of Jesus publicly declaring her faith in Jesus, it wasn't easy. It divided between her and her parents. I have seen spouses, I have seen people who are single, who want to get married, and so they marry someone, nice people, but those people are not believers. And they have been asked or told by me and others, don't marry someone who's not a believer. The Bible doesn't want, that's not the pattern that Jesus wants you. He wants you to marry a believer. And they do it because they think that love can overcome it, that their commonalities will be okay. And so they marry an unbeliever, And a little while into it, if they hold on to their views, see, the word of God starts dividing them. And the husband and the wife, who haven't even been married that long, start going different ways and having arguments, and they're opposing one another. Why? Because Jesus' words separates, even amongst relatives, siblings. I have seen brothers and sisters at odds with one another, and they don't want to come to holidays and be together with one another. Why? Because one of them wants to pray for the meal. (laughs) I've heard those stories, family members, in-laws, mother-in-laws, daughter-in-laws. I've seen it all happen. Here's what Jesus says, my words divide, the sword separates. That's what Christmas, I came to do that, he said. I came to do that because otherwise you won't know where you really stand with me. So the sword of Jesus, here's what it does. It's a sword of separation, but it's more than that. It's also a sword of suffering because Jesus causes conflict, not just between people, but within people. See, Simon, on that day when he held Jesus in his arms, the Bible says that he blessed them and then he began to say to Mary, in particular, although Joseph was there, he began to say, Your son is going to cause the rising and falling of many. But there's more, Mary. There's one that affects you personally. The sword of Jesus, here's what it says, it's going to pierce, cut through your own soul. It's a sword of separation and a sword of suffering. Mary herself would be pierced by the soul sword of Jesus. What does that mean? Here's what it means. And Mary would have to find this out the hard way. It means this, having Jesus at the center of your life, having Jesus born into your world, as it were. If you do that, if you are one who tries to follow him, be totally committed to him, here's what you can expect. It will cause you at times pain, conflict, and suffering It will change your expectations. It'll change the things that you value. It'll change the things that you love. It'll change your priorities, your schedule, your life, your friendships, your relationships. And here's what he said, Mary. Having Jesus in your world is going to do that to you. It's going to pierce your own soul. And, And Mary, as you read the Gospels, she had to keep reorientating her life around who Jesus was, keep learning who he was, Mark 3 gives an example where she comes to get Jesus because she's heard things about what he's saying and doing. And the Bible says that her and the other children that she had came and they wanted to seize Jesus. And it means to grab him and they wanted to take him home. Why? Because people were saying that Jesus, literally in the ESV, had lost his mind. He was saying things and doing things that people had never heard, couldn't explain from anyone. And to top it off, at the end of Mark 3, she wants to talk to him personally. And so she's standing outside waiting to talk to him. And there's a bunch of people sitting around him. And they come and tell him, whisper in Jesus, Hey, your mom's out there. And your brothers are out there. And you know what he does? He doesn't stop the lecture. He doesn't go, okay, give me a few minutes. My mom's here. You know what he says? He looks at the people around him. And he says, you know who my real mother and th- my real brothers are? You are. I bet she never expected that one. And it wasn't that Jesus didn't care for her. John, he commits John to take care of his mother when he's on the cross. He he loved his mom. But the hard thing about being Mary was she had to learn what it really meant for who her son was. She had to keep learning. She had to keep taking in. And sometimes, can I tell you this? That's true for all of us. And it'll cause inner conflict. Well, I thought Jesus in my life would do this. I thought if he was the sinner that it would mean this. And you have these expectations, and you want him to solve these problems, and you want him to do these things in your life. Jesus, if I follow you, then... And Mary had these expectations, but it kept changing. And eventually she has to stand before a cross and watch her son publicly shamed and dishonored, without clothes on, crucified as a criminal. And I'm thinking when she hears all the things that she heard at Jesus' birth that she never could have imagined in a million years that it would come to this. Have you ever felt that way? You remember the day you got saved and you brought, Jesus came into your life and you had this, oh Jesus, this is gonna be this way and you had these plans and you said, God, I'm gonna do this and, and it hasn't turned out at all like that. And there you are standing at the cross looking back and you're saying, I never imagined I'd be here. I never imagined getting saved would cause such a problem in my home, in my marriage, with my kids, at my job. I never imagined I'd have these problems in my life. See, if you love Jesus, as Mary did, and you want him to be at the center of your life, then a sword is gonna pierce your soul, too. And sometimes that'll mean conflict, and sometimes that'll mean confusion. Sometimes that'll mean doubt in your life, and sometimes it'll mean great suffering. And I can tell you this because I see it in Mary in the Gospels, and sometimes you're going to get it wrong. You're going to think you're out of, he's out of his mind for letting this happen, but the truth is you haven't got to your right mind yet because you don't really know who he is. Not altogether. J.C. Ryle, he wrote in a book that a Christian is known not only by new peace, but by a new conflict. For J.C. Ryle, as he looked at the Christian life, he says it's not one or the other. It's not just this romantic view of Christmas that, hey, knowing Jesus brings peace. He says it's both. He does bring peace, but he brings conflict first. And so J.C. Ryle says this, and I quote, the child of God has two great marks about him. He may be known by his inward warfare as well as his inward peace. See, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, there, many of the struggles you face in life will be over, or nearly over, when you get, become a Christian. You'll now know the meaning of life, that you're not an evolutionary accident. You're going to be right with God, and you'll know that your sins are forgiven. You're going to have your identity in God, and you'll know it's not in how I look, or the, the, the clothes I wear, or this or that. So you'll have that settled. You're going to be able to say, now I know what true satisfaction can be. I don't have to find it in this, that. See, some of those things when you get saved, they're settled. But when you get saved, it also brings a whole new set of struggles. The new peace that Jesus brings rarely, if ever, comes without a new conflict. Why? Because salvation is a two-edged sword. That's why it says, he's for the rising and falling of many, and many will oppose him. And so, guess what that means for us? That if you follow Jesus, then that's going to happen to you. If you make him the center of your life, you will be opposed. And you're going to struggle. And there's going to be people who contradict you. And there'll be a mixed response to who you are. I face that as a pastor, I make decisions. Some like it, others don't. And you'll find that to be true in your life. Jesus makes people mad, he makes them angry. Enough to crucify him, actually. But the Bible says there's a reason for it. Here's what the verse says at the very end, if you'll turn back to Luke chapter 2 as we close today. It's not just for a sign that is opposed, he says, a sword will be pierced your own soul. Here's why so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. There are four times in Luke's gospel that it says Jesus knew people's thoughts. Chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Luke 6, 8, Luke 9, 47, Luke 24, 38. Two of them are about Pharisees, and two of them about disciples. Religious people, relatives. Close to you, not close to you. Jesus has the ability to read our thoughts. Here's what Christmas does. Here's what the Christmas sword brings. Suffering and separation. And see, and Jesus knows our thoughts about those things. And and, and when his word gets into you, it's a two-edged sword, it begins to cut things. It begins to slice things. It begins, and you almost want to say, when Jesus' word penetrates down deep, it's like Jesus performing spiritual heart surgery on you. Because here's what it says. When his sword begins to cut you and to show you who you really are in light of who he really is and where he really stands in your life, not where you pretended to be, He says, the thoughts, and the word thoughts means, literally, it's the word dialogue. It means you talk to yourself, your inner thoughts, and nobody knows. You're you're talking to yourself in your mind. He says, I know about all those thoughts you have. I know what you're thinking. I know the conversations you have in your heart about yourself and your marriage and your sin and, and me. I know those. And he says, and the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and the word is apocalypto. It's the apocalypse. It's like Jesus brings a mini apocalypse. It means to unveil, to put out in the open, to show you, and it's not always happiness. It hurts when Jesus shows you who you are. And when he shows others who they are, and you disagree with them, Jesus says, expect it. Because when I reveal their hearts and you stay faithful to me, it could be a big problem for you. Can I tell you flat out, folks, 2021 and beyond, this may be more and more true for Christians than it's ever been before. Jesus' word is said in the culture in which we live, that we, Jesus says, this is not right, this is wrong, and these things, these practices, these lifestyles, these ways of viewing yourself, that these are, you start saying that, you keep, we keep preaching it, we live it, can I tell you, that's going to divide. And the separation sword will be obvious, and it could be that that sword will also, on the other edge of it, will be a sword of suffering, and we might begin to have to count the cost, to pay the price, to follow Jesus. He says that's how peace comes, though. That's the real Christmas story. That you might begin to be opposed at your job and in your family and at your school and in your own heart. Rocky Balboa, he, there's about, I think, seven Rocky movies, crazy enough. But the first one I, I, I have seen. And he's sitting in the corner after he's fought Apollo Creed, who's supposed to annihilate him, but doesn't. He's sitting in the corner. His eyes are all swollen. His trainer, Mickey, is there. And Mickey wants to stop because he can't hardly see what he's doing. He's just getting beat blindly, literally. As he sits in the corner, Mickey says, let's quit. We're going to throw in the towel. He says, no. Here's what Rocky says. No way. He says, cut me, Mickey. That's so what he says. And what he means is, take a little razor blade and cut my eyes so all the fluid comes out of it so the swelling will go down and then I'll be able to see. And he goes, I can't do that. And here's what Rocky said. you got it. i, I got to finish this fight. He, you know what? Here's what Rocky was saying. You know why he asked to be cut? Because I've got to finish. And I expect as a boxer, you know what happens when you box people? You get beat up. You get hit. And sometimes it's really severe. But sometimes you have to say, and you know what, that's all part of it. And so you say, like even Rocky, you know what, I'm going to finish because I got more rounds in me. I'm going to finish this thing. And so cut me. You know why? Because if that's what it takes for me to finish the fight, that's what's going to happen. Would we ever say to Jesus, would we? If you went to school, you went to church, you went to your job amongst your families, and, and, and you were starting to get beat up for what you believe, so to speak figuratively and figuratively maybe more Jesus says are you committed enough could you say cut me jesus obviously not literally but say jesus listen if this is what it takes to follow you if this is what it means to know you see I know the sword is part of my life. I know that's going to be, and see, in 2021, I want to be the Christian who's committed to Jesus, and I, I want to follow him, and can I tell you this? You cannot wait until you're asked on to suffer for Jesus, and then I'll get my life committed. Then I'll take it serious, and then Jesus will be the sinner, and he'll be my everything. It won't work that way. You will be no more in your trial than you were before it. And Jesus says, listen, you know what the response is? Jesus, I want, if the sword is necessary, then you bring it. You know why? Because I want to be committed to you above all else. That If that's how peace comes, please bring it in my life. Not that I want it, but I'm not afraid of it. Because Jesus, I'm committed to you above everyone and everything. Let's pray. Father, may your word, that two-edged sword, may it be effective, that's what the word, effective, energetic, may it be alive, may it do its cutting work in us, all of us. In fact, verse 13 that follows, verse 12 in Hebrews 4 says, it lays us open and bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Father, would you do that this morning? Would you help us, Lord, to let you, through your word, open up our lives, reveal who we really, unveiling an apocalypse. Would you just show us who we really are? And for some, that will mean coming to the conclusion that they truly need to get saved, that they've been playing the game. Father, I'm convinced you know people who just come to church and how that differs from people who are the church. You know that. Help them to see it for Christians who know you but they don't really follow you, that you're not the center, you're not their everything, that they come and go, they're casual about their commitment. Father, the game should be over in our lives. May your sword reveal that to us, that we might change, that we might have you be our everything. Please let your word do its cutting work in our lives this morning, that individually and corporately we might become really, truly followers of your son. And we'll thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.